You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We are on question four of the Shorter Catechism, and we have many copies up here. If you have not received a copy, we have free copies you can have, take home, bring back, or you can leave here if you want and pick them up every week. Um, Could you hand these out? Sure. Thank you. If you would like one, raise your hand, and John will get you one. There's plenty more up here if we run out. Uh, We want you to have a good copy in your hand, and um, one thing you can be doing we're going at a slow enough pace where we're, we're going uh, so that you could even memorize these questions week by week. Uh, we have a good starting point discussing the question, then throughout the week, you can spend the week memorizing it if you haven't memorized these already. It's wonderfully edifying, um, and you'll start to see how your prayer begins to be infused with this language, your thinking, um, and it's just a wonderful tool to help mold and shape us. So um, encourage you to do that. Uh, Ernie has his uh, shorter catechism in his back pocket. There you go, that he's memorized. And look, look, at the, look at the back of it. Look at the back. It's falling apart literally. He's used that thing so much. Um, so you can be like Ernie and keep your shorter catechism with you at all times. Thank you. All right. If you want more, we have more up here and more in the bucket. So um, we are on question four. Really quickly, um, I want to bring out one resource. The question I think Lambert's asked when we were going through the, large, or through the confession of faith was, are there good resources to teach this to children? Um, the shorter catechism was meant for kids. It was meant to be taught to kids, for kids to memorize, and so they could understand the faith. Even before they understand all the content, it gives them a grammar for speaking about the truths of Scripture. And this is a wonderful resource called Training Hearts, Teaching Minds by Star Mead. Um, this has become a kind of a classic and a, a standard family worship guide that people have used. It's wonderful. Each um, Each week centers around one question, and there's short, like paragraph, two paragraph devotionals on each uh, for each day of the week. And there's scripture readings to help augment and learn and understand these things. Um, This is really wonderful. I haven't personally used it in our family. I do hope to one day when kids get a little bit older. Um, But this is a wonderful resource, and I'll pass it around for you to to look at. Has anybody here used this StarMead resource? Yes, we've got some. Thumbs up, thumbs down. If you, thumbs up. What's that? It's probably better for older kids, right? Yeah, it's probably not best for two or three year olds. But um, yes, it's uh, it's good stuff. All right, we are on question four, and you've got your copies of the catechisms in front of you. Um, and so we'll turn to question four today, and we will walk through this question. Remember, we started off, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And what rule hath God given? How do we know how to glorify God and enjoy him forever? His word. And then what does scripture principally teach? Scripture principally teaches what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of him. We've heard a lot about God. Every single question has had God in the answer. And now the question is, what is God? What is God? So here I'll read three, uh, question four to get it in front of us. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. 
Well, many people might feel like this is just a list of things to talk about. And yes, we will talk about a list of things. Um, but uh, some have said this is the single best um, definition, if you can even define, God. It's the single best, most succinct, most powerful way to describe God possible. Um, there's a, there's a, a couple interesting things, I think, about it. Does anybody, um, w- when you read the question, what is God, does anybody immediately, like, flags go up or concerned or, like, weird? Okay. Who is God, right? Does anybody else feel that way? It's kind of strange to ask what instead of who. Yeah, we have a lot, a lot of people shaking their heads. That's always been my, my kind of feeling about this. Why, why do you not ask who is God? Before we can go, though, to who, I don't know the answer to that. This is my best guess. Um, before we can go to who is God, we have to understand something about him. Is he even a person? Is he even personal for us to be able to relate to? And then we can say who is God. Now, that question isn't asked and answered, but it's answered implicitly elsewhere. So before we can get to who God is and what he's like in his relation to us, we have to ask what God is in and of himself. And in that question, we'll, just, we'll find, yes, he is per, a personal being, but uh, it, it does strike us strange. Say, what is God? As if he's a thing, um, just like other things out there in the world. Um, any other, I don't know, any other, um, yes? sharing about the Lord with my chiropractor, hmm. and he says that he doesn't believe that there's a God. Yes. So for the atheist, who doesn't even believe in right. an intelligent design right. or creator, I can almost see the, you know, the relevance there of what? That's right. If, if, if not a creator, then what? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Spontaneously. So that's yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the logical prerequisite to get to who. You have to ask the what before you can get to the who. And you're, I think you're right. For uh, someone who doesn't believe in God, if you ask who is God, psh, whatever. I don't, I don't care. What is God? Well, I'll think about that. Yeah, yeah that's good. Good point. Good point. Any other um, speculations why they phrased it this way? Is there a hand over here? I, I wasn't going to speculate on that. I, I was going to say what's striking about the question and answer is how... Large swath of young people would answer this. They would answer it, God is love. Right, right. That's right. This descriptive, yeah. uh, you know, full form. That's right. The the reason I bring that up is I I was at a conference and I met a young man who was catechized, and he he tells a story of how he was catechized, he hated it, hated it, hated it, and he shows up at a Bible study. In Colorado, and the question was, "What is God?" He's like, "Oh, I'm ready for this." And they went around the whole room, and it was all related to how God was there for them. God is love, and then he gave the answer. They're like, "Yeah, we really like that. Let's move." And then they (laughs) good answer came up came up with it off the top of my head. Right, but before we can understand what is God to me, and that relational aspect, we have to know who God is in Himself. And that's really what this is answering. Who is God in himself? And yes, God is love. And uh, there's a lot of criticism here. We're not the creator. We're not the one in authority over God. We are the one created by God. And this creator-creature distinction is fundamental to all of our understanding of everything. But particularly when, when we come to God, we can't know God in himself. We know as he's revealed himself to us, and then we read back into that something about the essence of God. 
Um, But we are creatures and we are not the creator. We must keep that distinction in mind as we uh, read and try to understand what the divines intended here. So a couple passages to help set our our mind here for the next few moments. Um, But let's look at some of these key concepts that come up in this answer. And basically, every word is its own concept. So we'll go through through it word by word. Um, What is God? God is is the answer. So let's start with this, that God is. This is presupposed that God exists. Um, It's not arguing that God exists. It's just presupposing. In the same way, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God is not making an apologetic for God existing. It's just saying, this is what happened. In the beginning, God did this, presupposing he exists. And that's what they're doing here. Because you can't, with any other framework, make sense of the world. This is the framework you have to enter in, in which to make sense of life and the world and everything. Um, We have uh, some of these references here, and I'll read through some briefly. We may turn to some. um, I doubt it because I always go long. Uh, Well, I'll I'll read them. Um, But God is. uh, Exodus 3.14, this is where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. A statement of the self-existence of God. I am who I am. I am that I am. Um, It is me that is the only um, uh, the only being in the universe that relies on nothing else. I'm completely self-sufficient. And this is the presupposition of all of life. Then we have Romans 1, 19 through 20, that says, everybody knows this. Whether they believe it or not, whether they, whether they will uh, attest to it or not, everybody believes that God exists. And Romans 1, 19 and 20 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, speaking particularly of unrighteous men, that includes all people, uh, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. To them. Well, the question is how? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that were made, you know, things that have been made. So everybody knows God exists because God has demonstrated his glory and his infinite power in creation. So we know God through general revelation, through creation, but we know God especially, as um, this answer is framed, through God's word, his special revelation. So with the general revelation, we know enough of God to be condemned, but we can't know all the the facets and details of God that we do through through special revelation. So we need scripture for that. So God is, everybody knows it. Um, This is the only consistent explanation of reality to presuppose that God exists. Um, and, and the reality is atheism as a, uh, a worldview, as a framework in which to view the world, is, a, is an incredibly new phenomenon. This was not a... Re- this, nobody was an atheist until the, until the Enlightenment um, because everybody in the world, whether you were polytheist or whatever God you worship, you believed that God exists in some way. Um, but in our world around us, it's presumed that God doesn't exist, but that's a very novel thing. A very new thing post-enlightenment. I thought it was just worth noting that. So God is. Key's concept number one. We have 12 of these, so we will be scooting through them more quickly. Um, but I want to pause here. Any, any comments? And of course, we can go down the apologetics angle. We can go, how do you talk about this? Um, I'm not sure we can go there very deeply this morning. Julia? Mm-hmm. Right, I right. I am, you know, and That's right. It's like, take me as I am, and I define myself. 
right. by myself. Right. And I think that's a lot of hubris because that's like what God does only. But it also is sad because it's empty because we are so much. That's right. And then taking that responsibility of self-existence upon your shoulders, that's a huge burden to carry. You weren't intended to carry that burden. We were intended to, to know ourselves in relation to God and what he's made us to be. God tells us who we are. And then now if you're trying to reinvent who I am or trying to prove to the world who I am, it's a huge burden to carry. And we were not meant to carry that. That's a good point. So God is a spirit. God is a spirit. Um, now, this is another interesting point. We'll, we'll camp out here maybe for a few minutes longer than we will on the other points. Um, God is a spirit. This is, this is a quotation from John 4, 24, where this is um, Jesus with the woman at the well talking about worship. Um, who, where, where do we worship and what's going on? And, and Jesus says, God is spirit and he seeks worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, it's interesting. I, I in my mind, and maybe this is just weird, idiosyncratic me, in my mind, I, I hone in on this word, a. God is a spirit. What is the significance of that? And diving in a little bit, I've, I learned that that's simply the way that English translations read um, at the time. King James, Bishop's Bible, um, all the, the, the Genevan Bible, all of them read God is a spirit based on the Greek. Today, uh, our translators don't do that anymore. Uh, based on the Greek, they, they think it's God is spirit. And I think that's probably a little bit better, more theologically accurate. And so what the divines were doing was simply quoting scripture when they said God is a spirit. Because when it says a spirit, it sounds like he's one of many kinds, kind of spirits out there. Um, but the point is, this is his essence, is he's spirit, essentially. Um, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I do think that uh, it's, it's the same idea when we read John 4.24 today. God is spirit. That's what it's saying. God is spirit. God is a spirit. Um, and so what does it mean to be a spirit or to be spirit? And Jesus in Luke 24.37 explains this a little bit in passing. He says, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. This is to Thomas, who says, is this really Christ? He says, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So when we say God is spirit, we're saying God is not flesh and bones like us. God is immaterial. Um, the children's catechism um, you, the, ask the same question. What is God? Does anybody know the answer? What is that's right. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. The Children's Catechism, um, which is not written by at, at Westminster uh, more recently, but they're asking the same question, but they're, and they, this is the answer. God is spirit and does not have a body like men. They're describing what does that mean for little kids to understand. It means God doesn't have a body like us. God doesn't walk around like us. Now, we get to the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. That's another topic for another day. But God in his essence doesn't walk around like us. He's not a created being. He doesn't have physical time, space limitations. He's spirit. He's immaterial. He's not something that can be seen, touched, or tasted. Um, and there's two kinds, the theologians will point out, there's two kinds of spirits. There are created and finite spirits, such as angels, human souls, we'll say these are spirits, um, in the same sense of being immaterial substances, um, but then the other kind of spirit is the infinite and the uncreated. This is God alone, right? So we do distinguish between God alone as the spirit um, and then all other created spirits that he has created. Angels, our souls, um, 
And that might be the end of the list. I haven't thought too deeply about it. Um, let's pause there. What are, what are your thoughts here? Jim? So I, just, I think of the demonic world and the spirits of the demonic right, world. Right, exactly. part of this. That's right. And I think the fact that they use the article A and call it out as a spirit and mm-hmm. capitalize mm-hmm. acknowledges that he is the spirit. That's right, that's right. And therefore, he's over all other spirits. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's good. And I do like the capitalization. Um, Our official version of the confession capitalizes spirit. Not all versions of the confession out there capitalize it. But yes, it's a capital S, spirit. That's exactly right. It's the spirit um, setting it off from all the others. And that's right. um, The the demon, the world of of demons um, counts as, you know, they're fallen angels. So they're included in that description of angels. But that's right. It's a very real realm. Um, and I love uh, Ephesians and elsewhere in scripture talks about Christ has conquered this realm of spirits as well. Uh, he has bound all of these and he has, he has authority over all spirits, um, even evil ones. So we can take great comfort in that. Yeah. In Genesis 3, it says, how many heard God walking in the garden in the cool? Of the question is Genesis 3, they heard God walking in the cool of the day. Um, all right, I'll give you my take on this. Take a minute here. I think it's a terrible translation. I don't like to say that, but it's a terrible translation. Um, God, they heard God walking. That word doesn't necessarily mean walking. It means God coming. It can mean walking, but it, it is a more generic word for coming. And so God is coming in the cool of the day. The actual word is um, spirit. It's the word that's translated spirit, spirit translated wind um, elsewhere in the Old Testament. And uh, there's no place else where it's translated cool. I don't know why we have that. Actually, I do know why the Septuagint translated it that way. Whatever. Um, but we've taken that tradition. I think it's wrong. I didn't think the best way to take it is God came to them in the spirit of the day. Um, and the question, okay, what is going on when you take it that way? I think that's a better translation. Um, and there's biblical scholars who agree, and this is not my, my you know, novel theory. And so what's going on is they heard God coming. And the, the sound of God coming, the way, I, I forget all the details, I have to look at it and read it back in the Hebrew. But the, the idea there, this is a loud noise. This is a commotion. This is the coming of judgment in the spirit of the day. And the spirit, the coming of the spirit elsewhere in the Old Testament is a, is a view of judgment coming. Now it also has positive things for God's people, but the spirit coming and the day is always referred to as the day the Lord's coming. And so this is the first time we get a sense of that language in the Bible, the spirit of the day, the Holy Spirit's coming in this day for judgment. And so what they hear, they hear God coming. It's not here, God walking. It's not God saying, hey, I'm here to hang out today. No, this is God coming in judgment upon sin. This is not a, a, a fun little let's walk with God in the garden. This is God coming. You're, de- you're a dead man. And so that's really what's happening in that passage. It kind of turns it on its head, I think. Um, and so... Some people will say, yeah, well, God was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. We don't have any indication that actually was true. What that verse really means is that this is the day of appointed judgment for God's people. And God was coming um, to judge to judge them. And he extends common grace. And then he extends redemptive grace and all that. Um, but that was what that day signified. And then we see echoes of it throughout all of Scripture. Right, right. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and the, the prophets particularly use that language and the loud, the, the noise of it is, is a common refrain. It always talks about whether it's trumpets or thunder or rushing waters or something. There's always a loud sound associated with God coming in judgment. And so, yeah, you're right. They're, they're images through, through the Psalms as well. Um, and so we see this, this uh, rep, repetitive theme and we see it for the first time here in Genesis three, right after sin enters the world. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. They hid because they were, they were going to die because God said in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they knew death is coming. I I hear it coming. And so they ran and there's shame and guilt and all that. Absolutely. um, A part of it. All right. Well, that was, that was worth a little rabbit trail. I like that one. Um, Every time I can talk about Genesis three and the spirit of the day, I will. So thank you. Thank you for that one. All right, God is spirit. Hey, there we go, the spirit of the day, speaking of God as spirit uh, coming to judge. All right, um, I do want to look at one other implication of this, that repeatedly all the commentators, when I went and read them on this, they all went here. And it's not a place we would normally go, I think, in our implications thinking of who God is, but I think it's really important and instructive, and so I do want us to, to go here. Um, James Fisher wrote a, what he calls the catechism on the catechism. And so he literally, it's a catechism question and answer going through these question and answers. And I just want to read number 15. Um, As a result, talking about what does it mean that God is spirit, on and on and on. And then question 15 asks this, is it lawful to form any external image of God with the hand or any internal imaginary idea of him in the fancy? I love that. That's a great way of putting it. Can you form God, God who is spirit and material, who cannot be seen? We don't know that he doesn't look like anything that our physical eyes can behold. So is it appropriate for us to make a external image or an imaginary image of him in the fancy? I love that. It's just great language. And here's his answer. I'm sure you can, uh, can uh, predict it. It is absolutely unlawful and idolatrous condemned in the second commandment and other scriptures, Deuteronomy 4.12 and 15, Romans 1.23. Man cannot form an imaginary idea of his own soul or spirit, far less of him who is the father of spirits. And so very clearly he says, look, we don't know who God, what God looks like. And to make any kind of image is idolatrous. This is the second commandment. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Um, You shall not bow down and worship them. Because if you had an image of God, you must worship And we don't know what God looks like, and we can't have any images of what God as spirit looks like. Ernie. So I I, uh, fully understand why we aren't to make any of these images. Yes. But the Bible seems to be full of attempts to give us images. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. Why why are we writing with these? Yeah, no, that's a great point. So we do have, you know, um, uh, Isaiah with uh, seated on the heavenly throne and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. We have all kinds of wonderful images. And the point of these images is to not describe to us what God is like, but to show or what God looks like, but to show us something about God. And so we draw a lot from these images and we can, it's okay to think of these images in our mind. We're not there to worship. We're not, we don't even think this is what it actually looks like. But the point of that, that uh, when God brings Isaiah into his heavenly throne room, um, the point of that is, is the overwhelming sense of 
of the holiness and the glory of God. And that's what's trying to be conveyed there. It's not saying this is what God looks like. It's not even saying God sits on a throne because God's a spirit. God doesn't have a throne, a physical throne that we think of when we see, when we think of a throne. So, um, those are incredibly important and they're for us with our, with our finite, now fallen creaturely minds to have some sense of what God's like, some sense of, of his holiness and his glory. But it's not telling us this is what God looks like because again, he's spirit. He doesn't look like anything. God is unseen to the human eyes. I think this is why Calvin says that the scriptures, you know, God is listening to us. That's right. That's right. So that we would, just as we converse with a child, their level, mm-hmm. God is condescending his speech to us. That's right. We have some way to understand his power. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. It's analogous language, um, as the philosophers would say. It's not um, univocal language. It's not telling us how things are one-to-one, but it's analogous, telling us a sense of what's going on. Um, there's something true that we can learn and glean from it. Um, all right. So, it is not lawful to make images of God. And then we'll put uh, aside the, image, the issue of images of the second person of the Trinity as he is now incarnate um, for another time. But God, in his essence, cannot be imaged or created in our fancy. Yes? Just a simple thought that there are people that will say the tree is God. Right. So this would prevent them from exactly. having those thoughts Exactly. That's right. Because this keeps God separate from his creation. Now, God created his creation and he's intimately a part of it. But God is his the creation is not God. Right. So the tree is not God. Um, The burning bush is not God. God represented himself through the burning bush. But that is not God. And this keeps us from worshiping the creature rather than the creator himself. Mm-hmm. Right. That someone has to be somewhere. Right. It's just really hard, Jason, just to, and I always feel guilty about what you just taught us, but that's really hard to do. Right. So the, the language here, I, I, I hear you. And so the question is, when I pray... I think of something that kind of represents God in my prayer that I'm praying to. Kind of have to have this image of something to pray to. And I, I, I totally get that. Um, uh, let me read the question. And this is James Fisher. This is, you know, some guy talking about this. I think a good guy. But, you know, this isn't our ultimate standard by any means. But he says, um, is it lawful to form any internal imaginary idea of him in the fancy? Um, and what I think he's getting at here is this intentionally constructed image of God, who he is, that I might worship it. So this is an intentional construction. And, and the, the larger catechism uses similar language of, of constructing idols in our mind, of images of God in our mind. It says this is not lawful. Same thing Fisher's saying here. Um, and there's an intentionality there that it's speaking of. When I say, this is the God whom I'm going to worship, we create an image in our mind, that's what it's denying. I don't think it's, it's denying the reality that maybe we have this sense of a blob of something that we're praying to when we pray. I don't think it's saying that that's inherently something that's wrong. But when we go a next step and say, I'm going to construct that blob in my mind in a way that I think is going to look like God, I think that's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. 
as he is and not as I believe. That's right. That's right. And that's exactly the same point that this is making. We want to pray to God as he is, not as I make him out to be, not as I want him to be. Um, and then when we make images, we're invariably making him to be what I want him to be. Um, I once heard someone else say that uh, as they would, if they want to imagine God, they would put the revelation and look at the tongue of a sword and a flaming hmm. eye. Yeah. yeah. Again, there's, there's lots of images of God. He, give, he gives us these. He's also his father. He mm-hmm. Right. Things, right. I, I think over, over constraining God or, or taking those beyond an analogy. So exactly. Beyond, uh, that's right. That's right. Exactly. And with all this knowing, we can't see God. Even, even if God appeared before me, I couldn't like look at him like a body. Now he would destroy us all with his glory and his holiness. But I couldn't see him as, as a person stands in front of me. Um, and, and that's just kind of difficult for us to comprehend. All right, let's try to hit a few of these uh, remaining 10 concepts in uh, the next seven minutes. Um, <laughs> And uh, see, see how far we go. All right, so the, it says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Three adjectives that describe the other uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven um, realities. So his being is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. His wisdom is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. His power is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. So we can go through all these. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of these attributes. And what's important for us to realize as we talk about the attributes of God, these are not like different aspects of God or different, like he has his holiness arm over here. He's got his power arm over here. He's got, you know, these different aspects and you can kind of remove one arm and God is who he is. Uh, Apart from that, these are all describing the same one singular essence of God. Um, And so these aren't parts of God um, or, or, or things that can be removed or, or fundamental realities that God depends upon. Things are holy because God is holy. God doesn't take take something that is holy and bring that into a part of himself. I'm not describing that very well, but I hope you're getting the sense that God is not dependent on these various pieces to come together to create who he is. God is, and all these things are describing different facets of how we understand God to be. Is that right? Am I getting that, Mark? 100%. Okay, thank you. Pieces are parts. That's right. And that's so, that's so important. There's not, not, nothing that we can derive. That's right. Exactly. Because if God was dependent upon... Um, power to be God and, and power was something independent from God and he depended upon it. Well, then God's no longer God because he's now dependent upon something else. All these things are essential to who God is. And so it's, it's, I don't even like talking about them piecemeal the way we have to as humans because it begins to make us think now God's dependent upon these other things when that's not true. God is these things. And one of the things that occurs in the church today is people say, my God wouldn't. Right. So we start separating that's right. what is a human. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes people say, people have said this to me, uh, well, if God is like that, then I'm, I can't worship him. Like, well, okay. That's your problem because that's who God is. This is, what, this is what God has revealed himself to be. You can't pick and choose what you like of God. God is who he is. Um, and so let's, let's think about a few of these uh, ideas. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Um, he's infinite. Um, and that he's not limited by time. So he's atemporal. We'll see he's eternal in a moment, maybe, if we get there. Um, he is not limited by space. So he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Although he, he's everywhere near, in, and around the tree. He's not the tree, though, right? This is a difference. He's everywhere, but he's not the tree. He, in his, he fills all things as God. Um, and also, he's not limited by capacity. 
So that's talking about the power, right? His wisdom and power. He's not limited in these things at all. There's no capacity that runs out of God. Um, he is infinite. And we can talk about Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Or Psalm 147. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. So this gets back to our finitude and we can't comprehend him. He is infinite. Um, John Goodrich, uh, he and I were talking a couple weeks ago after Sunday evening. Um, he was talking about the different kinds of infinity there are. And there's actually some infinities that are greater than other infinities. Blowing my mind. I don't understand. But if all that's true, I believe him. He knows way more than I do. Um, this infinite is far greater than any kind of infinite we can ever imagine as people. Right? This is an infinite that has no end, no measure. You can't remove anything from this infinity and it will become less than what it was before. This infinite fills all things. He's eternal. Uh, because there's no beginning or end. And this is really compared to creatures. Creatures all have a beginning, even though we might not have an end. Our souls are immortal. Um, Our bodies will be raised and perishable for eternity. So there's a sense in which we are eternal going forward as creatures. But this eternality of God goes back forever and forward forever. And so he's, he's different from us. Psalm 90, before the mountains were brought forth or ever Uh, You had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So none of his attributes cease or wane. None of his attributes get smaller over time. His power doesn't diminish or decrease. It's forever and ever. His wisdom is perfect and infinite forever and ever. It never runs out. Unchangeable. Um, This means he is always the same without alteration. Um, Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, James 1.17, every, uh, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. This is radically different from uh, Allah of Islam, who is capricious. You don't know with what measure he's going to measure you when you die and stand before him in judgment. For one person, it might be an easy measure. For you, it might be a hard measure. You don't know. He's capricious. You never know. But our God, who says something, is unchanging. You can count on it because he cannot change. His nature and essence are unchangeable. He's not ever different. His counsel and his purposes are unchangeable. He will not change any of his decrees. His love and grace are unchangeable. He will never revoke them. There's nothing arbitrary or capricious about him. All right, I'll stop there. These three attributes, we probably can't get into anything else today. Um, but we, he's, these, these attributes are true of his... Um, Being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So much to mind there. Just um, imagine, here's one of the great things about memorizing this is. You sit and you memorize this list of 10 adjectives plus spirit. So 11 things. Um, You memorize this list. And then what you can do is you sit and you meditate on it. What does it mean that God is wise? What does it mean that God is, is good? And you can sit and think about it. And you can say, yeah, God... God is is better than anything. Jesus says, nothing is good but God. And meditate upon that and how glorious and how wonderful and how awe-inspiring he is. What does his holiness mean? I mean, we need need help meditating on these things because we can't comprehend ourselves. But this is a a plug for memorizing this because you'll just find yourself walking and maybe, maybe you won't, but you can intentionally, while you're walking, find yourself meditating on these things, which is meditating on truths of scripture. Julia, we'll end with you. That's right. That's right. So we need to go back to these scriptures and to find 
That's right. Exactly. Um, the, the little uh, catechisms you all have are great. They give you a footnote for almost all these. They actually don't give you a reference for some of them, I noticed. Um, but if you get the real deal, um, you have, um, I can't even count them. There's pages and pages of footnotes for these. So this question has like, it's like one line on one page and there's like three or four pages worth of footnotes that it's referencing, scripture that it's referencing. So this is the light version, I will say, uh, but you can dive into this or find, um, uh, the PCA online has a PDF version of this you can find and you can dive into scripture far more deeply and understand what they're getting at. But all of these are straight quotes from scripture, attributes ascribed to him in scripture and things we ought to meditate on. Um, well, let me, let me close this in prayer. And if you have thoughts or questions, you can come up and talk to me afterward. Father, who are we to comprehend you, to understand you? And we are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have showed, shown us who you are in your mighty actions and through your revelation. And even most, um, uh, you've shown us who you are most greatly, most pointedly in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown us a way back to you, that you have given us eternal life through the blood of Jesus. And Lord, may we never cease to to contemplate who you are, your goodness, your mercy, your beauty, your holiness, your justice, as we find hope in who you are in this weary world. We thank you, Father, and pray that you would help us to worship you rightly in spirit and in truth in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.